Welcome to the Hutchmoot Podcast, the library of sessions recorded at the Rabbit Room's annual conference, which celebrates art, music, story, and faith in all their many intersections. Today, we're excited to share a session led by Sho Baraka called Shaping the World with Stories from 2021's Hutchmoot Homebound. In this session, Sho discusses the shaping work of restoration and justice and the importance of the ways we portray God in the stories we tell. Enjoy. When I was young, I, uh, I remember I was told that I was good in a few things. Um, one was sports. My, my father played professional football, so if, uh, if I was anything quite the disciple that he wanted me to be, that means, you know, obviously I was pretty decent. My older brother was an exceptional college athlete, so, you know, I was pretty good. I was a decent athlete, but I was also a pretty decent poet. Uh, my parents used to make me do reports around the Harlem Renaissance or other African-American luminaries um, back in the day. So learning and writing about these individuals pushed me into the creative writing process. Interesting enough, though, uh, once I got to around high school, I realized that the ladies like rappers and not poets. And so I kind of made a transition into rapping. So uh, I kind of left poetry behind. But anyway, I was told that I was good at that. And I was also told that I was a good storyteller. And I used to love writing short stories. I used to love telling stories. And even if it wasn't writing stories as a young man or a young child, I used to love telling stories, right? Uh, I remember watching The Goonies when I was young and thinking, like, like that's me. Like, I want to write, like, adventure epics about a band of misfits who, you know, dismantle crime syndicates and greedy developers and the ever-stretching arm of gentrification. I mean, you probably didn't think that movie was about that, but that's exactly <laughs> what Goonies was about. But uh, I today stand before you as someone who is employed for his creativity, who is a vocational writer, if you will, storyteller. I do that as a trade and as a passion. And I believe that stories have the ability to shape culture and to shape people. I believe that storytelling is a form of identity formation. Uh, our, our, identities, our identities are formed by the narratives that, we are, that, we, that are transmitted by family, by culture, by friends, and by our faith. However, at some point in my life, those things, the sports, the, the poetry and hip-hop, the storytelling, those things that I once thrived at and which were good, I ultimately started to use them for my own benefit and for uh, my own selfish interests, and they became idols. Sports became a way for me to shame others and garner attention, uh, negative attention. My poetry became more vile and obnoxious. Uh, my music today is obnoxious, but it's like, it's righteously obnoxious. It's, <laughs> it's an obnoxious that Jesus would like. Um, my gift in storytelling became something that I used to manipulate people and to inject myself into the importance of the story. Um, and what we, one thing we can all understand is, in a lot of ways, this is our narrative. This is our origin story in the garden, right? So when we think about being created for good, we also see that those good things ultimately became inverted and corrupted. Um, our relationship with God was corrupted. Our relationship with one another was corrupted. But not only that, one thing that I know you guys get in this room, but a lot of people who are watching me and I get, is something that's quite pivotal, is how we create and cultivate was also corrupted. 
Because oftentimes when we talk about the gospel and we talk about what we do and how we tell stories, we often leave out the third aspect. We talk about our personal relationship with God. We talk about our relationship with one another. But in the gospel and all of the things that Christ is redeeming, we don't often talk about culture creating and how we use our narratives to shape a better world. Um, Individuals fashioned for good, telling stories, but then the serpent comes in and he inflates the story. And now we manipulate and we seize opportunities to make narratives about ourselves. And we think more highly than we ought to. I believe that almost every evil act that we can think of is (laughs) perpetuated with a story. Like there's a corrupted story that leads people to egregious acts, something that you believed about somebody. And so therefore you act out that particular story, that bad narrative. And if we're going to get back to a place in the garden of goodness, then we must admit not only do we can we tell good stories, but we also can tell very bad stories. And so there's three things that I ultimately want us to kind of talk about is one is that we have to be honest and tell the truth about society when we tell stories. I know I'm good at particular things, and I know that I'm a good person ultimately, though, because I acknowledge the propensity of how bad I can be. Um, If I could get real theologically or real theological and academic with you, basically what I would tell you is that you ain't as good as you think you are. I recently wrote a book, and he saw that it was good, and this book is basically my, like, my ethical and theological approach to work, stories, and creativity. And we all work, we all tell stories, and we all create some sort of product, right? But I wanted to title this book, How Do I Paint God, right? And the reason why I wanted to entitle this book, How Do I Paint God, is because in reality, we all are painting God in some way or some fashion. We all paint an image or an idea of what we believe him to be, and then we carry that canvas with us as we go back and forth. So when you think about like a, an abstract artist, they're kind of communicating the dissonance and the chaos of the world. Uh, impressionists are communicating certain, the realists are communicating. You as an individual, the way you work, the way you create, you're telling a story about what you believe about God. And you're putting that on display for the world to see. Your work, your stories, your creativity is either contributing to the flourishing or to the detriment of society. And oftentimes when we think we're blessing society, we're, all, we're actually bankrupting it. And here's the reason why. When our humility is low and we are certain that our ideologies are right, we are capable of doing substantial damage. What we need is compassionate and charitable creativity, not colonizing hearts. Because see, what happened in the garden was Adam and Eve were given this flourishing, this lushful land, and immediately they were told stories, an inverted story, and what they thought was mine, all of this. I want all, I don't want just the parts that you, I want it all. And oftentimes what we do is we bring that colonizing heart to storytelling, We bring that colonizing heart to interactions with other people, to our creating. And so if we change that to a compassionate and a charitable heart, we would live in a much better society. A lot of times we operate in this dominion theology. 
And God gave us dominion, but not to (laughs) dominate over one another. There's a difference between being stewards than dominating and marginalizing people. And oftentimes we do this, we bring ourselves as colonizers and, 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 and dominating theology because of the extremes in which we operate or the stories that were told by our, our tribes, right? And, that's, and it's not just nationalistic tribes or racial tribes, it could be ideological tribes and creative tribes or cliques or whatever. Um, oftentimes in those tribes, we're fashioned without a sense of nuance, if that makes sense. And many times we fear uh, uh, diverting from that particular uh, direction because of the tribal ridicule. Tribal ridicule. Um, if I can give a few examples, all ever since I've been an, a voting adult, I've always known the religious right to be individuals who propagated uh, moral and 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 uh, an ethical uprightness to the highest of office. But the religious right supported a man, or not just supported a lot of people gave their allegiance, blind allegiance, to a man who had no religion or right in him. Evangelicals often, who are supposed to be the epitome of laying down their power for the benefit of others, are demonstrating the opposite. Liberals who are on the left often speak of, uh, of tolerance and solidarity, but shut you up and cut you off the moment you don't follow their ideologies. Activists who began fighting against despotism and avarice use the same systems and mechanisms that they used to shame capitalism off of profiting black pain, now turn around and benefit from the same systems they criticize. Celebrities and companies and execs scream about justice while grossly underpaying employees, creating ridiculous contracts and watching creatives who made them rich and famous die broke. And if I can speak to some of the people probably in the room or listening, because I know none of those are you, so... Artists and creatives who scream about the church's lack of support oftentimes turn around and show very little support to their brothers and sisters. The list goes on and on. What type of God are you painting? At the end of the day, what I'm trying to communicate is that we are a mess. In most cases, <laughs> there are no heroes and villains. And I know that when we read you know, children's literature and lots of there's often very clear heroes and villains. But honestly, when I think about who we are, we are all messy characters actually vacillating from courageous to cowardly. There are moments when you're very courageous and then there are moments when you're very cowardly. And if you are not as righteous as you think you are, then possibly your opposition isn't as evil as you hope them to be. Therefore, I want to make sure that we have an honest and humble hermeneutic of humanity. See, as Christians, I know that there is no perfect society. You can be liberal, you can be conservative, you can be black or white, you can exercise the greatest ideas of your tribe, but that society will fall utterly short of perfection. And I look around and I think about race and I think about religion and class and sex, and we don't need those things to hate one another. All you need is a neighbor, and you will find a reason to loathe that individual. We will develop a story that will shame them, and think about the lies that you even tell yourself of when you look in the mirror. If you can't even love yourself at times, 
What makes you think that it will keep you from hating someone who is not you? And so when I think about ourselves and I think about the Christian life, if anything, it's, it's teaching us how to actually live and operate in an imperfect society. There is no return to Eden, but there is a call to understanding how we live and operate in a broken world. If this is not Eden, I like to liken it to the Garden of Gethsemane, where there is pain, where there is doubt, where there is conflict, where there's unfaithfulness, but yet still Jesus decides to go to the cross on the behalf of other people. That is the, that's the Christian life. That's the life we're called to. That's the story that we are to exist in. And so much as it is possible, how do we continue to contribute in our cultivation, in our creation, in our storytelling to the redemption of those things that were perversed and inverted in Eden? Um, a call to justice and redemption isn't disconnected from our work and our story. It's tethered to it. And this is why I'm quite amazed when I think about uh, the faith of slaves who worked on plantations. They never disconnected justice from their faith. The stories that they told and the spirituals that they sang were not just one of spiritual deliverance, but they were also of a physical liberation. These are individuals who had their stories, their, their, their justice directly connected to the, to, the, to the stories and the theology that they held to. And so spirituals, I think, are a good example of what it looks like to tell a story of not of just a, 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 a mental, uh, a, a cognitive relationship with the Lord, but also a corporeal, a physical work that he's called us to do, right? So going back to Genesis, he's called us to have a physical relationship with him, but he's also called us to have a physical relationship with the land. And I think about the, the, the spirituals and James Cone speaks of the spirituals in this way. He says, it is the faith that is refusing the limitations placed in this material world. Saying that you can be in bondage, you can be enslaved, but that does not mean that you're actually captive to the ways of this world. Oh, yes, we do want physical freedom, but I am still free in Christ. Yes, my theology is calling me to a, a relationship with Jesus, but it's also calling me to do something about these chains that are keeping me bound and inhumane. Amen. Du Bois says it's the faith of an ultimate justice of things. Our stories are to tell the truth about society. And so the second thing that I want to talk about is if we're going to tell the truth about society, we also got our stories have to carry dignity and difference. Oftentimes we talk about reconciliation, but the reality is, is that in our stories and about justice and how we tell stories, we can't get immediately to reconciliation without telling the truth about society and history. Now, calm down. This is not critical race theory. <laughs> I know Karl Marx didn't send me. I have been commissioned by <laughs> Jesus Christ, okay? But the reality of it is, is oftentimes when we, when we think about friendship, right? Now, I've been married for 18 years now. Um, don't look at my hand because I lost my, my ring. Uh, <laughs> I've been married for 18 years now. And imagine, my friend Propaganda has a wonderful poem. And he talks about this relationship where there's an abusive husband for, say, 20 years. And then at the 20th, the 21st year, he decides, you know what, let's, 
Let's have an amicable, let's have a, a healthy marriage and relationship. Well, you can only imagine if the wife hasn't left within the first 20 years, obviously, you can't just say, okay, things are cool now. There has to be truth-telling before we have a healthy, reconciled relationship. And it's amazing how we understand this in the context of a biblical narrative, but we struggle with this in human relationships. We can tell great stories on high about how in order for me to have a great relationship with Jesus, I have to turn away from my sinful ways, acknowledge the bad that I've done, and no longer, and repent, and no longer, and in many ways, repair the damage that I've caused. But in human relationships, we act as if like, no, just, oops, my bad, and then move forward. The stories we tell about society, the stories we tell about our relationships must bring dignity and the difference. And the way you do that is being honest, but also creating hospitality. Henry Nouwen talks about hospitality, not just being a place where you force change, right? It's a space like this. You create a space where change can possibly happen. And so for those people who have been offended, those people who, who are wounded and hurt, read Jonah. Because the wonderful thing about Jonah is this is a person who had every right to be offended. But God says, go and preach the gospel to these people who have offended you. And so he goes and he preaches and they are reconciled to God and he's furious. He's pissed off. Because his heart's posture didn't really want to see his enemy become family. And as we are dealing with differences, do we really truly want to be family? As Jesus asked the paralytic man at the pool, he says, do you want to be healed? The question seems absurd. (laughs) Do you want to be healed? Who doesn't want to be healed? But maybe you found pride in your affliction. And, And this is all types of affliction. Are you allowing Jesus to redeem and and, and to reconcile those and creating space where redemption and reconciliation can possibly happen? But the truth must be told, right? The other thing within understanding dignity and difference is we must learn to appreciate, not appropriate. How do we appreciate one another and the stories we tell about one another without appropriating or just loving people off of their performance. One of my favorite um, stories or movies is, uh, uh, I mean, one of my favorite filmmakers is Spike Lee. And one of my favorite movies from him is Do the Right Thing. And there's a particular scene in Do the Right Thing. I'm not going to use the language, but um, there's a particular scene where Spike Lee is the only uh, African-American who works in a pizzeria owned by Italians. And one of the older Italian brother is just vile with his language. He's always calling black people the N-word. And he uses it flippantly, right? You can kind of say he doesn't. It it seems as if he's not doing Sometimes it seems as if he's not doing it in a vile and, and vicious way, right? But at one point in the movie, Spike Lee pulls him to the side and he says, hey, you know, Pino, let me ask you a question. Who's your favorite athlete? And he says, Michael Jordan. He's like, who's your favorite comedian? He says, Eddie Murphy. Spike asks him, well, who's your favorite musical performance? And Pino says, uh, I think he says Prince or Michael Jackson. And then Spike Lee's character looks at the Italian brother. He says, it's amazing. You walk around here and you call everybody the N-word, but all your favorite people are N-words. And then he says 
Pino, the brother, responds with, well, they're not really inwards. They're different. And see, what we've done or what he's done, and I think what a lot of our culture has done, is we separated the, 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 the people from the performance. We can appreciate the performance of people, but not actually dignify the individual who's doing the performance. And so in the stories we tell, you can't separate. I grew up around a bunch of Asians and never really had Asian friends, but loved Asian food, loved this, loved that. And then I realized, it's like, why am I keeping myself from Asian people who I know God made in his image, et cetera, et cetera? It's because of the lies that I've believed about Asian people growing up in Southern California, where there were race riots, where there were tensions and conflicts. And at some point, somebody had to tell me God-honoring stories about a people, and I had to actually believe that and get over my fear and say, you know what, how do I begin to see dignity and difference? And to shift just a little bit, one of my favorite luminaries, Zorina Hurston, does this in an amazing way. As I mentioned the Harlem Renaissance before, Zorina Hurston was a an individual who was a part of the Harlem Renaissance. And the Harlem Renaissance, for those who don't know, was a caucus of exceptional, talented writers, thinkers, musicians, painters, et cetera, dedicated to changing the, the narrative of race propaganda. Now, they, uh, it was, you know, that wasn't their sole goal, but in a sense, that's what they did. They were just a bunch of creatives and thinkers and, and intellectuals who lived in Harlem or migrated to Harlem because there was just this boom of creative ingenuity that was just taking over America. It's probably one of America's greatest cultural movements, right? And the strategy was, in some ways, once they knew what they had, was to exalt the exceptional of the black race, so the middle class, the educated, to confront the lies of racism. However, Zora Neale Hurston did a different, she, she kind of took a different path. She was a writer and an anthropologist, and she committed to a different strategy. She was, or she focused her attention on what was perceived to be the low culture of black society. And, and, and I believe a lot of us in this room and those listening, I'm going to keep saying these, us in this room because I'm just used to that. But for those people watching, I think we can learn a lot about not just trying to propagate or, 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 or catalyze the exceptional people in our culture and saying, love me because of this is my representation, but looking at the people at the margins and saying these folks are not only dignified in the eyes of God, but they're, they should be honored and dignified from us as well. Um, <clears throat> she was a master and author of, uh, uh, she was a, a treasure hunter of Negro folklore. She challenged the boundaries of literature, literature. She gave affirmation of female voices. She collected countless tales of the church and God from a Southern black experience, capturing extraordinary faith from ordinary people. The answer of affirming dignity isn't solely the propping up of exceptional people. Anyone can love exceptional people. The gospel is real when you find yourself loving your neighbor, especially those who don't fit our social clubs. And the way she would do this is she would just travel to different parts of the South. She would even go to Haiti and different places. She would just take countless bits of, uh, of, of stories and she would write about them and her counterparts would chastise her because they were like, this is not what our culture needs. But the reality of it is, is that I think we struggle with this even in our society today. And we're going to do a little test, right? Right now. 
In some of our intellectual and academic spaces, amen, you'll hear people talk about the sovereignty of God. But maybe in the backwoods of Alabama, the way that they communicate the sovereignty of God is God is good all the time and all the time. Come on. See, that's theological right there. That's that's deepness right there to them. That's basically the sovereignty of God. In some spaces, some people will will say uh, uh, lofty words like uh, or lofty terms like substitutionary atonement. But in the backwoods of Tennessee, what you may hear in an old Baptist church is bread of heaven, bread of heaven, the blood and sign my name. They're communicating the same righteousness and redemption that Christ took on the behalf of the people. They're just using different types of language. Amen. Some people may talk about the perseverance of the saints, but my grandmother would just walk up to me and say, baby, just keep on, keep on. on." That's theological truth. It's talking about how God's grace and the spirit will keep us from falling away. Lastly, in her book, Their eyes were watching God. The character Charlie Jones (laughs) exhorts the character Daisy. And he says, Lord, 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 there must be a recess in heaven if St. Peter didn't let his angels out like this. (laughs) The brother's just communicating the beauty of God's creation. Amen. Some may call it catcalling. I don't recommend it. (laughs) But what I'm saying is, is that theology in the palace is not just sufficient for all of us. We must understand that we need a theology and stories that are told on the margins, not just theology about the poor, but a theology from the poor as well. Lastly, uh, we talked about stories must tell the truth about society. Our stories must carry dignity Indifference. Uh, lastly, I would love to talk about how our stories can repair brokenness. In 2011, my faith was in this, this limbo. I wasn't necessarily going to walk away from the faith, but I was just wrestling with what does it look like to be a creative in the cultural Christian, I guess you can say, empire, right? And I happened to be with a group of friends, and we decided that we were going to see screw tape letters off Broadway. And uh, we walk in and uh, we are amazed by the presentation, the individual, I just, name just slipped me, Max, uh, Max McClain, boom. Thank you, Pete. Max McClain was on stage. I had no idea who Max McClain was. I could have bumped into Max McClain in the elevator and be like, hey man, you're a big dude, talk. Anyway, um, (laughs) Max McClain is on stage and uh, he gives this wonderful uh, theatric uh, uh, demonstration and then afterwards he does this Q&A with the audience and then he starts asking these really poignant questions and I'm sitting there and I'm thinking this dude is a Christian nobody asks strategic questions like this and then as we leave we get to meet Max and find out you know, yes he is a believer he actually did the, the, the voice for the ESV Bible at one point in time was attending Max I mean uh, Tim Keller's church um, but one thing that I learned was that Christian fidelity and talent not only needed to exist inside the church, but it can exist outside the church as well and far beyond my lifetime. Think about this. The work of C.S. Lewis, an individual who had written this play maybe 70 or 80 years prior to this time, is in the most secular space 
in all of the world probably, and is preaching the gospel to about 300 people who are professing atheists. Because that question was asked, how many people actually believe in the God of C.S. Lewis? And it was probably about 15% of the crowd raised their hand. And so to think that the work and the stories we tell will live far beyond us can also exist outside of the paradigms of the church, can change the lives of a young man who C.S. Lewis probably didn't write this play for. It transcended not only countries, it transcended race, it it transcended demographics, it trans class. This young man growing up in Southern California will ever be changed by the works of screw tape letters. I commission you, I charge you not to limit your voice, not to limit your stories, to trust the work of the Lord in your hand, with your pen, with your paintbrush, the stories you tell. Let the Lord be glorified in what you do and the stories you tell in a broken world. But I also know that sometimes our work, although it can repair a broken world, that it also can damage a broken world. I mean, it can continue to perpetuate the brokenness in this world, right? I was in a Bible study and a pimp walked through the door and I said to the pimp, you can't do that kind of work no more. He begged for forgiveness and his knees hit the floor with his eyes to the sky. He asked for forgiveness from the Lord. See, a pimp we know works in a very terrible and and vicious and and deplorable vocation. He not only explores or has an inverted view of himself, he thinks more highly of himself, he also has an improper view of the people he's prostituting, right? And if that person was to walk in our church, we would clearly say, you need to change your vocation because you are causing detriment and you are bankrupting society with the kind of work you are perpetuating. Amen? However, I was sitting in church And a predatory lender walked through the door. The leader said to him, would you like a seat on the elders board? With a smile on his face and accolades galore, we celebrated this man even though he exploited the poor. See, what is the difference between the pimp and the predatory lender? You see, they both are masters of exploitation. They both exploit people for their own benefit. But they just have different types of hustles. We must consistently evaluate our work and ourselves and our lives to make sure that we are not exploiting people. We must make sure that we are not celebrating those people who are exploiting people. And we must do self-inventory that we are making sure that we are contributing to the flourishing of society. Christopher J.H. Wright, prominent theologian, says oppression is by far the most recognized cause of poverty. He says the Old Testament asserts, as all modern analysis demonstrates, that only a tiny fraction of poverty is accidental. Mostly people are made poor by the actions of others, directly or indirectly. Poverty is caused, he says. And the primary cause is the exploitation of others by those whose own selfish interests are served by keeping 
others poor. So oftentimes we look at poor people and we say, oh, they just woke up and just wanted to be sorry and terrible. But how often do we think about the circumstances that we may create that perpetuate the poverty? I think about Marvel, and I love Marvel. Marvel is one of the few films that my whole family can watch, my teenage kids, and, you know, and still all of us kind of walk away feeling like, oh, we entertained. It's pretty good. But if you've watched any Marvel film, you know one of the great heroes and uh, protagonists is, is Iron Man. Iron Man is uh, a character in these movies who flies around and saving he people all across the globe, right? He's an amazing superhero. Iron Man is also Tony Stark. Sorry if I, you haven't seen it. I ruined it. Okay. <laughs> Iron Man is also Tony Stark. Tony Stark is a billionaire and he's a philanthropist. He's a playboy. You know, he's just a, a genius, right? But the interesting thing is Iron Man has to save the world because of the problems that Tony Stark causes, And oftentimes I think about the church and how we want to put on capes and go save the world. But if we just had a better theology of work, maybe we wouldn't have to put on the Iron Man suit and go save the world. Maybe if we were just better Tony Starks, we wouldn't have to be Iron Man. And as you are thinking about how do you create, how do you tell stories, what do you do for the glory of God? Are you creating detriment? Are you Tony Stark? Are you causing problems that you have to put on a suit and go save the world? Or are you just saying, you know what? How about I just work for the glory of God, not think of myself in the perverted way, not celebrate the perversion, tell the truth about society, see my work and my vocation as a way to, be, uh, to repair the brokenness Cultivation happens in your vocation, and the workers are few. You can be called, but the calling must first change you. I'm encouraged by the missionaries that I meet. Pam's a podiatrist. She has beautiful feet. Raheem is a boxer. He's beaten the best. But the toughest fight is when he's daily fighting his flesh. I know a, I know a doctor, and his name is Jason. He prays that the Lord keeps working on his patience. Sarah works in fashion and she's no slave to the dollar. She's clothed in righteousness, whether white or blue collar. Jimmy is a fisherman and he's found new purpose. He's fishing for souls. He calls it networking. Lang works in a law firm out in Las Vegas, but her favorite part of work is the cross-examination. Keisha owns a bakery with her husband, Ramon. They always tell their kids not to live off the bread alone. Keith plays basketball, and everywhere he goes, he has a defense for the faith while reaching for his goals. Theo is an officer, and this might sound crazy, but he's the only cop I know who wakes up to die daily. My cousin at the IRS, I know we hate people at the IRS, but he's my cousin. His name is Thomas. On many different levels, he deals with false prophets. Cultivation happens in your vocation. The harvest is plenty. And you don't have to be an architect to rebuild your city. 
Because if all we do is tell stories of transformation, but we never live the transformation, then all Jesus is is just a good story. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate. If you're wondering what in the world a Hutchmood is, you are not alone. Let me give you the short version. Hutchmood is an annual arts conference hosted by The Rabbit Room in which we gather people together around art, music, story, and faith. If you want the long version, check out the website at hutchmoot.com, where all of your questions, or at least some of them, will be answered.